I'd like you to imagine that a five-year-old boy named Thomas attends our church regularly with his parents. As far as anyone can tell, Thomas likes coming to church, enjoys being here, but one Sunday night, a special meeting is called and we are informed that there's a very serious problem. Little Tom has a deadly, contagious disease. If not addressed, he will slowly expose the entire church. Sadly, the only way to deal with this is for Thomas to endure a very painful medical treatment over a very long period of time. As you deal with this sad news and you consider the implications of it, things now get really kind of crazy. And you learn that Tom's parents have known this for some time, but they have been bringing him to church anyway, exposing everyone to this disease. The man stands up and says, well, really, it's not that big a deal, is it? A man who's never spoken to Tom and has never been involved in children's ministry and doesn't get anywhere near the kid. But he says, this can't really be that big of a deal, is it? Then a woman speaks, we need to show the depth of our love for this little boy and his family by being willing to risk our health along with them. That's what love does. He needs to be in a loving church every week, not alone by himself in a hospital. Children begin to speak up and say, he's our friend. We don't want Thomas to go away for a long time and have to suffer these harsh treatments. And you're saying to yourself, is this really happening? Is this the 21st century? Are these people insane? What am I hearing? Through your mind, or perhaps you even gain the floor, and you say, as hard as it may be, the most loving and beneficial thing we can do for little Thomas is to isolate him in a hospital where he will have the optimal chance of recovery. And as hard as it would be to see him go there, it is absolutely necessary for the health of everyone else in the church and all who are around him. He cannot be permitted to expose everyone to death. This is insanity. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? As we live at this place in human history, we realize that this is just strange and there's only a certain way to deal with such a thing. But what seems utterly obvious to us in the physical realm must become equally obvious to us as a church in the moral realm. Entrenched, unrepentant sin in the life of a church member is a moral disease that requires us to separate the sinner from our fellowship for his or her good and for the health of the church. This proposition is rooted in the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, and I invite you to the fifth chapter of this book, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. As many would say, this proposition is barbaric. That there's a confusion being made here between the physical realm and the spiritual realm. But what you will find as we work our way through this passage is exactly this. That sin is a moral disease that requires that we separate a sinner from the congregation so that that sinner does not corrupt the congregation with sin and so that that sinner 
is in fact aided and helped in the process of dealing with sin. Now the Corinthians had sent a correspondence to the Apostle Paul wanting certain questions to be answered. This is not one of those questions. They didn't see the need to ask this question to deal with this matter, but their reputation had preceded them. Paul was hearing about it. There was a question and an issue that had to be addressed, and so he brings up the matter to them. Now, the first two verses of 1 Corinthians 5 will summarize the matter of moral disease that is in the assembly of the Corinthian church and what they need to do about it. And then at verse 3 and following, Paul will unpack this material in greater detail. He confronts the spiritual negligence of the church in the first two verses as he lays out this matter. Verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. The chapter could really end right there. Pretty much says it all in those two verses. But we have an identification of a member's entrenched sin in verse 1. A member of the church was living in unrepentant sexual adultery. Now, he's married to his father's wife or living with his father's wife. We can't be sure, though it's very possible that they were married. But as women were married very young in that social context, it's probable the man and his stepmother were close in age. Perhaps uh, his mother had died some years earlier and his father had married a younger woman. We don't know, of course, any of this. But extended families often lived under one roof or at least in close daily proximity. And somewhere along the line, these two cast lustful eyes upon one another in the context of a family. That lust took root in their hearts, and it gave birth to hideous moral degeneracy, overwhelming any social resistance to their passion. And now the report was spreading that these two were living together. Such relationships were were not unheard of in Roman culture, but as is indicated here, they were deeply offensive and they were actually illegal in Corinth. But what the godless world found repulsive, the Corinthian church remarkably found tolerable. We find now his rebuke of the church in verse 2, of their failure to respond, and this amazing statement that you are arrogant. You should be mourning in contrast to your arrogance. What is the relationship of this arrogance, or what is its roots? We don't really know. Was it theological? Did they believe they were free in Christ from the law and from the expectations of an unbelieving world? It could be. Was it sociological? Some have argued at great length that this man was a wealthy patron and that the church was proud to have this man in their assembly and they just weren't going to touch this matter of sin. Or perhaps it's just self-centered. They're really not proud of the sin. They're not proud of the man. They're just proud that they're okay, that everything is fine the way that it is in their church, and they're not dealing with this man. We're not really sure of their arrogance, but all we know is they were arrogant. And you'll notice here, as we ask the question, who is guilty of sin? You'll notice that the man clearly is guilty of sin, isn't he? He's living in hideous sin. But we also notice that the church is guilty. 
By continuing to extend fellowship to this man, by remaining self-satisfied rather than convulsed with grief over his moral failure, the church had become guilty before God. The church was liable. In Paul's mind, the church's toleration of the sin was as bad as the sin itself. The moral disease of this one man had unveiled, as one has put it, a failure of the body's entire immune system. So we find the rebuke of the church's failure to respond, followed then in the latter part of verse 2, by instruction on the church's obligations to act. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. The church as a body was responsible to banish this man from their fellowship. That's a hard word, but that's what Paul is saying. He does not say, notice this, he doesn't say, unfortunately, by his immoral behavior, this man has cut himself off from the fellowship of the church. He doesn't say that. He's saying something is unresolved. You as a church have not acted to remove this man from among you. A church cannot remove a man from a circle that he is not recognized to be in. But this man was recognized to be in that circle, and the church permitted that recognition to continue. And that was wrong. When a church member lives like one who is outside of the circle of God's people, the church must withdraw its corporate affirmation of his or her salvation. Not to say that we know that they're saved or lost, but just to say they're not living as one within that circle. Now, as I said, in the remainder of the chapter, Paul will now flesh out this counsel. In verses 3 through 5, he insists the church must act for the good of the sinner. He instructs the church here on what to do next. Verse 3, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit and... As if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. The Greek text is a little bit more pointed here. The English fails us to some degree. But as we put the text together with the theology of Paul, I think it's unlikely that he means, I really wish I was there, but I'm not. As if physical reality is more real than the spiritual realm. He probably means to say, since I am with you in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that brings up a very interesting point, and maybe just a simple tip-off to us as we would exercise church discipline. We must always do so with the sense that there are others watching. We must always do so with the sense, would this be how the Apostle Paul would deal with it if he were leading our church? Would this be how Jesus Christ would deal with the matter were he leading our church? In other words, we have to look away from the idea that church discipline is an in-house matter. That it only deals with our assembly. Paul's saying, I'm not with you physically, but I am with you in spirit. I have decided what should take place in this situation, and you must act. It's not just your matter. It's a matter of the integrity of the entire body of Christ. So our goal as a church when this terrible situation arises would be to act as a church with motions 
and to act as a church laying out a situation such that we could publish that to any godly person and they would say, you did the right thing. Paul is saying to this church, you are not doing the right thing. He knows what is right. He now explains to the Corinthians what they must do. Verse 4, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. I think that's probably what he's saying there again by the fact that I am as if present. He is present. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What does this mean, to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? The wording might not be how we would put it in our day and time, but the idea of it is fairly straightforward. To deliver to Satan is to put the man outside the circle of God's protective and edifying care provided in the covenanted body of believers. That is to push him out from under the protective umbrella of Christ's body into the world where he will be exposed to the storms of satanic influence. Simply said, he will be removed from the care of the church and will be returned to the care of Satan. We know what that means. The destruction of the flesh. That is not referring to the loss of his salvation. Clearly, as we see that played out there at the end of verse 5, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It's not the loss of his salvation. It's actually to work toward his, his, his salvation, not the loss of it. It may certainly be a matter of death. But I think mostly this points to Paul's hope that the ravages of sin will bring the man to abandon his fleshly, sinful stance of self-satisfaction and autonomous rebellion. That under the realm of Satan, we might think of it almost in terms of Satan working with God in the matter of Job and saying, allow me to touch his flesh. Out under Satan's influence. Paul's hope is that that this man will be brought to his knees. Now that's ugly. It's hard to stomach. To think of someone who is part of your body, a member of your church, being placed out under the influence of Satan so that they are now susceptible to attack in a unique way. But it's hard to see a little kid with a disease go through painful treatment too, isn't it? As long as this man remains unrepentant, this is the only answer. So the church must act for this man's good. Not sending the message that he is one of them, walking in fellowship with the body of Christ, but delivering him into a place of discipline outside the church under Satan's direction as approved by God. But now at verse 6, we learn that the church must act this way for the purity of the body. That is not only for the good of the individual, but also for the purity of the body. Paul supports his exhortation first with an illustration at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Leaven is not the same as yeast, 
Leaven is a bit of dough held over from the previous week, which is allowed to ferment and causes the new lump of dough to rise. I'm thinking in a Jewish context particularly, as they rest on the Sabbath day, that, that leaven, that piece of bread, its fermentation has started there. There might be some dirt in it. It actually can even carry disease. So it is sort of a dirty thing, but it's necessary for bread to taste really good. So that leaven is carried forward from week to week throughout the year. Sin is like that. If unaddressed, it will slowly corrupt the entire church. This member's sin had become a cancer in the bloodstream of the church, to change the analogy, and church discipline was the only treatment. But staying within the context of leaven, and now the Passover festival... Verse 7, Paul argues, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Let's go back here and try to unwind that a little bit. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. And here I think, this is, I might be wrong on this, but this is Paul without a computer. So he's written that statement and he's thinking that could be misunderstood. The analogy breaks down a little bit here and so he adds, as you really are unleavened. So cleanse out the old leaven, but indeed you really are unleavened as a body of Christ. He's pointing here, obviously contextually, to the Passover festival, which celebrates God's deliverance of Israel from Egyptian bondage. And at the start of that festival, the Jews, if you remember that, would break their year-long practice of using leaven in their dough for an entire week. This was called, in connection with the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So for an entire week, they would eat bread without leaven, and it was a picture to them of the purity of God's people. Paul stresses then that the Christian church is like that pure, unleavened lump of dough. We're not, as one has said, a patched up society. We are the radically new body of Christ. So what Paul is saying here, church of Corinth, listen, you need to be who you are. Who are we? Well, as the latter part of verse 7 says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Who are we? We are the new community formed by the sacrificial death of Jesus, our Passover lamb, who frees us from sin's bondage. As the Israelites smeared the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their homes, so we as a church are identified as people liberated from the bondage of sin by the blood of our great Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. We are a new community. We are a new lump of dough. We have been redeemed by Christ. That's what the church is. So the implication Verse 8, let us therefore celebrate the festival. Probably to be taken as a continual sense. Let us keep on celebrating the festival. Not one week a year, but every day for the rest of eternity. We should gather on the Lord's day here to celebrate our deliverance from sin as a holy community redeemed by Jesus. A community whose 
Corporate life reflects the reality of our liberation from sin. That's who we are. We're a very different body. We're people that have been rescued by Christ. Now Paul qualifies this point by explaining how this relates to sinners outside of the church. Because that is a question that may arise. We are the new people of God. We are those who have been cleansed of sin. We are to live out that life in relationship with one another. How, though, do we then relate to the unbelieving world outside? Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter, probably a, a previous letter that we don't have, but I wrote to you not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunker, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. It's not an exhaustive list. Just looking at the contrast between an unbeliever who's living in sin and a believer who is a member of the church that is living in sin. There's a difference. If we are not going to associate with unbelievers who live in sin, we're going to have to live on the moon. We should expect sinners to act like sinners, and we should reach out to them in love. But hear me. When someone identifies himself or herself as a follower of Christ, in this context a brother, you cross over a line. You cross into the circle of church membership and there is there an entirely different world and expectation. That believer is a soul in the process of being transformed into the likeness of Christ. So people who claim to be in that circle, but who live like they are outside that circle, are to be treated differently than people who admit that they're outside the circle. We relate with evangelistic zeal and love and reaching out to people who are outside the church and know they're outside the church. We continue to proclaim the gospel of forgiveness in Christ. But when there is one who has crossed into that circle and yet lives as if they're outside that circle, we are to love that person enough to sever any level of association which conveys that we remain in fellowship with them. Because they've crossed in, we have to have a different relationship to convey that they've now been placed outside. We can interact with them in daily business as we would with an unbeliever. We can relate to them as family members if they are in our home. We don't cease to become family members. But all distinctly Christian fellowship must be broken off, as epitomized in table fellowship of a common meal, for instance. I think not referring here only to the Lord's Supper, but really just to fellowship. If you send the message that everything's normal with this person living in entrenched sin, you are in sin as a church. 
Now the goal that is not stated very pointedly here, which Lord willing will look at in the future, is the goal of repentance. But I think that's certainly indicated at the end of verse 5. The goal is that this person would come to change. Not simply that we would stop associating, but that this person's spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Tying it again back to Matthew chapter 18, that's clearly Jesus' intention. That the one confronted with sin will repent. In this situation, we're dealing with something that's probably a bit different. We're not dealing with a situation that's private. We're dealing with a situation that's already become public. And now there's only one thing to do, and that is for the assembly to act in a way that is consistent with reality. This person is not living as one who is part of the redeemed community that's been delivered from sin. Now that redeemed community is going to have sin in it. But the believers live a life of repentance. It is common for every genuine believer to say, I was wrong, please forgive me. To come to God and say, I confess my sin as they come to him in prayer. That's the way of life of the genuine believer. This is a man who's saying, I'm not going to change. I love this sin. I love this woman. I want to remain with her. She brings me so much joy and so much pleasure. I can't get rid of her. That's not repentance. And this one is to be disfellowshipped. Verse 12, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Now he really brings this to bear in the relationship between sinners outside and inside. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? I don't think in the first part of the verse he's saying, why on earth should I care about people in the world? I mean, look who's writing the letter. This is a man who's gone across the Roman Empire proclaiming the gospel of Christ to unbelievers. He cares very much about unbelievers. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is it's not the job of the church to straighten out the morals of society. It's our job to proclaim the gospel of Christ. It is our job to work to make sure that our candle burns brightly in the darkness, not to go out and try to fix the darkness. Our lives should influence the broader culture, undoubtedly. They should see our light shine and be influenced by it. But our job is to maintain the purity of our own house as we labor to demonstrate that we are a body of believers set free from sin's reign. That means that as we work hard to nurture godliness and righteousness within the body, our light will shine that much brighter in a dark world. That's where the focus is to be, as opposed to going into that dark world and trying to clean it up. We are not called to press the distinctive moral fiber of the redeemed church upon people who have not been liberated from sin and do not have the baptism of the Spirit. It's a hopeless task. What do we have to do with unbelievers when it comes to this matter, says Paul? Nothing. They're sinners. They will live like sinners. Hold high the gospel of Christ and invite them to repentance and to change. Invite them to Christ. But when it comes to the church, now we have a different project. Someone might be thinking, so the unbeliever can just live however they want. I don't want to cross into that circle of the church. Now I'm held accountable. There's a higher attention given to my moral life. I just live outside in the world. Notice the next phrase of verse 13. God judges those outside. 
That doesn't mean that the unbeliever is free from judgment. It's just not the church's job. It is God's job. Let's put this together, and I may speak to some separated from Christ here in our assembly today. God will judge sinners, every one of them. And every one of us is a sinner. As sinners, by nature, we are destined for a meeting with God in eternity. And we will stand before an absolutely pure and holy God, covered in our sin. There is only one way that that can work out well. It will lead to judgment and to destruction. Or, as the light of this reality dawns, as the light of Christ's grace dawns upon us, God's holy judgment against our sin, we come to realize fell on Christ, who died in our place, and who bears the full weight of our sin. So sin will be judged by a holy and righteous God. He can do nothing else. Will that judgment fall upon your head as you stand before Him in your self-righteousness with all of your sin? Or will you receive the work that Christ has done to bear the penalty of your sin and to suffer the judgment in your place? Trust Him today if you've not done that. That is your only hope. God will judge those outside. You have to come in. You have to come in to Christ, who is our righteousness, because He pays the penalty of our sin and gives us His standing. Come to Christ today. God judges those outside. What does He say at the end of verse 13? You are to purge the evil person from among you. God will deal with those that are outside of Christ. God will deal with the lost world. You proclaim the gospel there. But in the assembly, it's a different situation. Here, you are to purge this person out of the assembly. That links back up to verse 2. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. That's where he closes the summary statement, verses 1 and 2. And that's where he encloses the entire discussion in verse 13. Purge the evil person from among you. Now I undoubtedly speak to some here who are believers in Christ. You have come to receive the work that Christ has done. You have trusted it. You've placed your faith in Jesus' death in your place. But you are not a member of a local church. Some would find themselves in process. They're working toward that, and it takes some time. And as a church works to make sure that its body is made up of regenerate believers, that will take some time. There's a process there. There's others who need to be waiting. You need to wait for church membership because you've not yet been baptized. You've not yet demonstrated before others that you have identified with Christ. And perhaps even there's still some work to be done on discerning whether or not you're really a believer. But beyond those qualifiers, let's ask this question. If I begin to live in unrepentant sin, I get caught up in a web of destructive sin, I don't get loose from it, what is this church supposed to do? 
In light of what we've read, it's really not hard to answer, is it? What are we supposed to do as a church? You should answer, out of love for me, the church should purge me from among them. I then would ask, how can I be removed from a body that I have never agreed to join? I've never come into the circle. Other churches around that honor the word of God, other churches on the other, part of, on the other side of the planet that honor God's word are not responsible to make sure that I am living righteously before the Lord. They can't take that responsibility. But how can I be removed from a body I've never agreed to join? How can I be disfellowshipped from a body with which I have never covenanted to walk in fellowship? Now please hear me carefully and know that I say this out of love for you and out of loyalty to this text and to Christ. If you are a believer and not a member of a local church with which you have covenanted to live as a believer in community, you have chosen to position yourself in such a way that you are free from corporate watch care. You are bypassing God's intention for His people to live under the protective discipline of the church as a member of the body of Christ. Let me say it one more time. That means if you became caught in sin, there would be no way to put you out of the assembly because you have not chosen to subject yourself to the assembly's corrective discipline and the assembly has never covenanted with you to render that kind of watch care. You have to enter into some agreement and covenant that we will live that way and we will be responsible that way to one another. And so, with all of the qualifiers stated that this may take time, that you may not be there yet, Every believer in Christ who is not a member of a church needs to move in that direction as directly, as purposefully, and in a timely manner as possible. There is a word for those of us who are members of Eden Baptist Church. We cannot skirt this issue in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, this is our job. This is our calling from Christ. It's not the elder's job. It's not the deacon's job. It is not something we can afford to ignore. If a member of our assembly becomes entrenched in unrepentant sin, in some way maybe perhaps even reveals that they're an unbeliever, it is eventually along the way our job as an assembly to purge the body of that person. Let's never forget why. First, for that sinner's good. It would be like taking little Thomas to the hospital and with tears running down our cheeks, putting him into the care of that ward where he will get the treatment that he needs. Daily life isn't going to be the same. We're not going to see Thomas at the dinner table and in church and around playing out in the neighborhood anymore. He's going to be isolated in a very severe environment for his good. 
And when a believer walks in entrenched sin and refuses to repent, we place them out under Satan's world and in his care as a means of difficult but necessary discipline for the good of that sinner. And then for the purity of the church. When a church graciously, lovingly, effectively, honorably removes such a person from their assembly, it is as if their light grows brighter. Now, we can take that off in the wrong direction and become less than gracious as a church and no longer allow room for sin and, and, and squash confession and honest admission of wrong. No, remember, we are a body that confesses our sins to one another. We are a people who lives in repentance. But having said that, when someone will not repent and will not live as a genuine believer who's been liberated from sin, removing that person brightens the light of the church in a dark world. When you become a Christian and join a local church, we are not going to apologize for the fact that you cross a line. You enter into the circle of a covenanted body of believers with corporate responsibility to live a life of moral purity and accountability. Sinners all, but repentant sinners all. And as you think of that, would you like to live outside under Satan's influence, out from under the umbrella of the protective church of Christ, or do you want to live crossing that line? How else would you want to live as every minute of life brings us closer to the day of the Lord? I welcome that accountability in the right sense of the word, that scrutiny. I welcome the body of Christ, my brothers and sisters surrounding me and helping me to stay on track. Because my individual privacy pales in comparison to the day that I will stand before Jesus Christ. And so we must love one another. And so we must love anyone who becomes entrenched in sin so that they would be saved in the day of the Lord and so that our church might shine brightly that we are a different people because of Christ. Let's seek him in prayer. Our Father, we need your help as a church. It's not easy to exercise discipline a lot easier to just smile and ignore many times. But I pray that you'll give us the heart and the courage and the love that would be deep enough and strong enough to stand up to someone who's headed for destruction and to say, Stop. 
We bring this matter up as a church because of this series, not because of any particular situation. But I trust then God in providence as you have laid out this series in time that you are seeking to bolster and strengthen and prepare us. And I pray that we'd be prepared. We want to believe that through formative church discipline, we will never again have to exercise corrective discipline, but we know that's probably not the case. And I pray that we'd be bolstered as a church. Lord, there may be among, uh, among us those who are separated from Christ, who though they know about Jesus and the Bible, have not come to the place where they really have trusted the work of Jesus in their behalf to pay the penalty of their sin. I pray that the light would dawn. I ask that the Spirit of God would work in their behalf. And I pray that they would hear and heed the call to repentance today. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.